This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it is fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jacqueline Michard, author of the novel The Good Son. It's unacceptable to get to the end and suddenly we've all read a book like this where they say, hey, the butler was his twin. And that's what, you know, it's not fair to just pull that rabbit out of the hat at the end. We'll be back with Jacqueline Michard after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Jacqueline Michard, the New York Times bestselling author of 22 novels for adults and teenagers and the recipient of Great Britain's Talk About Prize, the Bram Stoker and Shirley Jackson Awards. Her first novel, The Deep End of the Ocean, was the inaugural selection of the Oprah Winfrey Book Club. Michard's syndicated columns have been collected in a book entitled The Rest of Us, Dispatches from the Mothership. She has also worked as a speechwriter, teacher, and journalist. Her new novel is called The Good Son, which tells the story of two families devastated by a murder. 
On one side is Thea, the mother of Stefan, who was convicted of killing his childhood girlfriend when he was in a drugged stupor. Recently out of prison, Stefan moves back in with his parents and Thea struggles with unanswerable questions about the nature of her child. On the other side is Jill, whose daughter Belinda was murdered. Jill turns her pain into activism, rallying around Stefan's return home and violence against women. We began the discussion with Jacqueline Machard sharing the genesis of the novel, The Good Son. It is something I'll never forget. I want to emphasize that I did not want to write about this, and neither did my agent want me to write about it, because he said two things. One is that it was just unrelentingly sad, which is not not the way I spun it, but also that no one in the story was entirely appealing. And he he apologized for that recently because uh, the the people are uh, are indeed appealing both for their tragedy and both because each of them in his own his or her own way is trying to do the right thing. Anyway, I was at a uh, near Chicago at a big writers conference and I was about to give a keynote speech, and so I went down to get my coffee. I was in the coffee line. A woman in front of me dropped her book on the floor and I picked it up, handed it back to her and seeing, you know, naturally it was a book. And so I asked her if she was there for the writer's conference. No, she said, I'm here to visit my son. I come every weekend to visit him. He's in prison nearby here. And I stay at this hotel and I wanted to run. I really did. I I didn't want to know why her, she said he would be in prison for a good long time. I didn't want to know why, but she told me anyway. She said that he was in prison for killing the only girl he'd ever loved, his beloved, said his sweetheart since the seventh grade. He was only 19 years old at this point. And he was so messed up on drugs at the time that he didn't even have any memory of the crime. And I looked at this woman so much like me, could have been me around the same age. And she went on to say that one time she went to the cemetery to put roses on the girl's grave and the girl's mother was there. The woman was terrified. The mother of the boy was terrified and didn't know what would happen. And as it transpired, the two women ended up holding each other and crying. They had been neighbors at one time. And the mother of the girl said, you're luckier because at least you can still touch him. So the power and the poignancy of that story was something that I never forgot. But it was a long time ago. It was maybe eight years ago this, that this happened, maybe seven years ago. And I had the strange experience, strange in my career anyway, of starting two books that didn't work out. Never happened to me before. I thought I had the Midas touch, but apparently not. And um, I just couldn't put them together. And I thought of this story and wrote to my agent about it. He was not excited. But as it turned out, it's a story that I think more people can relate to than would ever admit to being able to relate to. I have five sons of my own. And I wonder, as every mother wonders, could I still go on loving someone who had done the worst possible thing? When an idea like that takes hold of you and you have all these people around you saying, don't write it, is there something that you can define inside of you that pushed through like a reason or like an impulse that might help other writers? It actually was the relationship between the characters that pushed me forward. And I had seen a TED Talk, oddly enough, by Sue Klebold, the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the Columbine shooters. And she was magnificent. And I could tell that there were people in the audience who were absolutely blown back by the fact that she could say, I still love him. I still love my son after what he'd done. Yes, you know, I, I will always be in terror of and uh, heartbroken by his acts, but he's still my child. And that dichotomy, the relationship 
of the absolute tenacity of love, no matter what, was what drew me forward into the story. And I think if there is one emotional truth that a writer can hold on to as she tries to write a difficult story, because the stories that, I mean, let's face it, you don't write a terrific novel about an uneventful week at the beach. You write uh, a terrific novel about people who are in trouble and they're sort of slow tumble back to the light, if that's possible. Yeah, and it seems like ambiguity, too, is at the source of fiction and that that search for empathy to see both sides, because as a human being, we might be capable of anything, great love and great destruction. And we prove over and over every day that we are. And the least of us, the mo- the meekest of us might be under certain circumstances capable of great destruction, too. So that's something also to contemplate, that none of us is sealed off from the parts of us that are least appealing. Did you read more by Sue Klebold? Because I know she wrote a book, and I, I that was one of my things I was wondering about. I did. I did read that book. And again, it just broke my heart. She made herself completely vulnerable. She told the story of the aftermath of Columbine and what happened with her family, not to make excuses and not to say, hey, we suffered too, but to make it clear to people that there was enormous loss on both sides. I saw a movie recently. It was a wonderful movie. I think it probably is the closest I've ever seen to a movie that was perfectly made called Mass. It takes as its subject a meeting between parents of the victim of a school shooting and parents of the shooter, both of whom are dead. Both of the boys are dead. And you would have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by both of those stories because anyone who ever loved anyone whether it was a child or whether it was uh, another adult uh, or a sibling, uh, something like that, would have to wonder at the possibilities of that darkness and wonder if there is any possibility of mercy in that situation. The idea of empathy and compassion was so at the core of your book? Like you weren't hitting people over the head with it at all, but that was one of the essential questions of the book, I think. The nature of empathy and the nature of asking for empathy, I mean, not overtly asking for empathy, but being in a situation that requires, if you will, the best human instinct. And empathy, I think, is the most exalted of human emotions and even more exalted when required to provide it to someone who either has hurt you or someone who whose actions you don't understand or the actions of that the person close to that other person you don't understand and that was what i experienced in that lobby the last person on the face of the earth i wanted to be was that mother and yet by enfolding her story into mine by offering a part of me to her and uh, letting her inhabit me, that's exactly what happened. I will never forget how she looked, what she wore, the way her voice sounded, and especially, and I I think that this um, is important, especially how ordinary she was, how ordinary and kind, and you expect uh, because we, as human beings, we're so eager to have questions that have answers. We want our questions to have answers and for things to make sense. And when they don't make sense, when you look at someone and say, what did she do? What kind of lapse did uh, gave rise to a situation that now can never be Uh, remediated. And sometimes there just is no answer because, well, because there's no answer, because there's nothing she did. That was also like very central in the book was, was what are you really responsible for? What are you guilty for? 
where does blame come? So I want to do a brief synopsis of the book. The basic plot and gist is that there is a family, a mother, uh, husband and son, and their names are Thea, Stefan and Jep. And Stefan is the child and they live in Wisconsin and he had a girlfriend, Belinda, who they grew up together. They were friends since they were little. And then around high school, they started dating and Belinda had Maybe she was more active. She had more interest. She had more going for her. And Stefan had maybe less and was really just deeply in love with her and maybe less of an achiever and less of a good student. When Belinda went away to school, um, also in Wisconsin, he eventually went but couldn't quite make it there um, with his grades. And um, he stayed for a while at home and then and then went to join her, but was really more living in this town. So in this town, what happens is Belinda has new friends and we get intimations that maybe, maybe she's less interested in Stefan, but he ends up getting into drugs and she does a little bit too. And he ends up being in prison because in a drug-induced frenzy, he beat her and killed her. And the book opens actually when he is getting out of jail. And it's really about his relationship with his mom and his parents and his small community he's going back to. How can he be redeemed? There's um, the, the mother of Belinda forms a group of protesters for people against males who abuse females and they protest at the house. So he's always reminded of what he does. And it's kind of his search for healing, for redemption. And we are really, really focused in on on his mother. And I mean, hence the title, The Good Son, it's kind of coming from her point of view. And, and how does she move forward? She lost her job, so to speak. She was put on sabbatical. She teaches literature. So the question is like, how do you go on? And there are questions of, did he, is it possible he didn't do this because it was a drug induced state? Was there any other kind of answer? Perfect. It really is. So we're really honing in here on much of the story on Thea. She's a writer She's, te- she's a teacher. One of the things she says early in the book is when she's talking about female literary characters, because she writes a lot about them, was that getting what you wanted, I thought, was just a matter of setting your eyes on the prize and refusing to surrender. And that isn't really what happens for her. She can't take that philosophy. So I wanted to ask you a little more about her character and about maybe writing that line, if you remember I do write, remember writing that line and also a line that is right nearby in that book, which is uh, in, that, in the story, which is when she confesses that nothing in her life had prepared her for anything except moderate good fortune. She didn't really see, and who, who among us does, but she didn't really see herself thrust into a situation in which she would go from walking down the street with her dog into the abyss. And suddenly everything that she counted on as being hers by virtue of her achievement of of working hard, you know, being the daughter of an immigrant who uh, she and her sisters grew up understanding hard work as the path to everything good and suddenly Thea is without anything, including friendships, except for one, her her dearest friend, and without uh, pride, and feeling as illogical as it is that she is responsible for Belinda's death, somehow by having, being the mother of the monster. And I think that's unavoidable. We do, I don't know, uh, who said it? I think it was, I think it was Francis Bacon. I'm not sure. He who hath a wife and child is a hostage to fortune. If we're on our own and we take uh, responsibility for our own actions, that's one thing. But when you are part of a family, you also de facto take responsibility for what those people do. 
especially I think if you're a mother. And and our culture, any culture, also holds parents, particularly mothers, responsible for the good and the bad deeds of our children. That's unavoidable. And so Thea is in that trap and she rages against that at at several points in the book and says, I didn't do anything. Why is this happening to me? Why do people refuse to see me on the street? And how is it that I'm doing the same things I always did and I've fallen in everybody's esteem? She hasn't done anything except for, for the one thing that she cannot stop doing, which is continuing to love her son, because who else will? She had a really complicated at least her behavior toward her son was really complicated. You know, he came and he lived with her, but sometimes she maybe didn't have the most compassion or she, when he felt uplifted, she wanted to expose risks or reality to him that might come into place. And and it could be seen as something unkind, but it's also her responsibility to not, allow him to fully let his guard down because the world is so angry at him? It's difficult to enter into the circumstances of someone that you've, that you're not. I am not Thea and I was not in her circumstances. But in order to write a successful fictional character, you really have to inhabit that character and try to understand that character's emotions, which ends up sometimes with you crying. I mean, what a cheap day, you know, you're crying over your own fiction. But my identification with her grief and her anger had to be absolute in order for it to be authentic in the story. And she does go back and forth between compassion for her son, sometimes contempt for him and anger at him, and sometimes a protectiveness that extends to not even wanting him to leave the house because someone could hurt him. And indeed, there are threats against his life. There are threats from anonymous callers. There are threats from protesters. There are people who think that the verdict against him should not have been manslaughter on intentional homicide, but should have been something more severe that would have kept him in prison for a very long time instead of four years. And these are all of those, I think, are honest emotions that you would have in that situation, that a person, a good person, would have in that situation. And I don't think of Thea as being, I mean, sometimes she's wrongheaded, sometimes she's foolish, as we all are, but at her core, she's a good person and cares deeply for her son, even if she has to kind of feel her way in the dark as to how to regard him after he comes out of prison. There's even a point at which she wonders whether she's afraid of him and what he might be capable of. And that, to me, was stunning to experience that. Imagine being afraid of my own beloved, you know, my, my baby I raised. The book is really an exploration on a lot of levels, um, of parenthood and so much more on her than than his father, than Stefan's father and her husband, Jep. But what are you responsible for? You know, you you birth this child. It is outside of you. And and maybe perhaps is there an age? You know, if if this had happened when the child was was 40, it would probably be different than when he's 18, 19 years old. And I'm wondering if you changed if you came in with a certain thought and how it evolved, if it did, about that question of responsibility. I talked to a couple of mothers and I also read about more mothers who had uh, kids who were incarcerated around that same age. And he was 17 when he went to prison, when he went to, with Stefan, went to adult prison when he was 17. And he was not, he was 20 when he came out. And one of the mothers told me her son was a good son, but not a good boy, that it seemed predestined for him that he would end up in terrible trouble and that 
so many of his peers had ended up in terrible trouble. And one was a woman with a son not unlike Stefan, a different crime, but one that absolutely stunned the people who expected a different outcome for this kid. And I don't know which of those mothers had the harder time of it. I don't think there's a way that you can really slice and dice that. I also read about uh, people who were the parents of, I mean, pretty notorious criminals. And some of them completely sealed their lives off from that child. They had other children. They sealed their lives off from the aberrant child and went on living their lives. Others were involved, deeply involved, and remained involved throughout the the life of the incarcerated child. And one of them, even her son ended up being executed. You know, he was on death row at the time that she was talking about this. It's really a difficult situation to pick apart. One time when I was writing this book, I was at a writer's residency or an artist's residency. And there was a whole group of men and women, other artists in different media sitting there. And I posed that question to to them. If your son was convicted of doing this, could you turn away from him? And there were nine people there. And every one of the nine people said, absolutely not. Nothing on earth could make me turn away. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it's so primal. And something that's just coming up for me, I don't know if you've ever read this or thought about it and how we look at our children and how can we possibly disconnect from them is, have you ever read um, Khalil Gibran's poem on children? It says, it starts off, your children are not your children. Not your children. Of course I know. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. And I I kept thinking about this a lot as, as I read your book about how just that deep, deep question of what you're responsible for. I mean, and how you live your life. As Thea was trying to live her life, absolutely loving her son, facing the consequences like at work or having protesters around her house, but also trying to carve out what she needs to do to write her book, to still have her life and how you, how difficult that line of separation is. I wonder how Khalil Gibran would have written that in this situation, because it's easier, if you will, if you're, I have kids who are adults now, two of whom are married, uh, two of the kids are, the older kids are married. And yes, uh, I don't own them. I'm not, I'm not a part of their everyday lives. So they live nearby me and are, uh, are compassionate enough to me to uh, include me in many ways in their lives. I wonder how different it would be for me if they did not have those happy lives, if all they had in their lives was the one person or the two people who could still bear to be responsible for them, to be, uh, to care about what they needed. Stefan's life in the book, I mean, he's a grown man. He's still living in the bedroom where he grew up, though that's not uncommon in our generation because each of my children has had to make a pilgrimage back to their childhood bedroom between jobs. It, um, and I don't mind that at all, of course. I really don't. But in his situation, he is in a perpetual child role because the world doesn't want him as a man. You know, people don't want to, as much as we talk about this being a society of our society being a place where everyone gets a second chance, that's not really true. It depends on what you've done. And even in prison, it it, uh, is a dicey proposition for someone who has hurt a woman or a child. So 
in his situation, there really is not an obvious or successful way for him to start over. So he can't launch himself again, at least readily. He's stuck in a situation and his parents, much more his mother than his father, are stuck in the roles that they occupied when he was 15 years old. You know, another central question of the book, and Thea thinks about this, is does one brutal act define your life? Would it be always the thing that people thought about Stefan or the thing that they thought about his parents? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> Isn't it remarkable? I mean, think about it in our own situations. Think about it in the situations of celebrities or whoever it happens to be. Think about Pete Rose, you know, or somebody like that. You know, he was Mr. Baseball for so long and then gambling and made some missteps. And that is all anyone thinks about now when they think about him or, or other people like that. How are the mighty fallen? Because yes, if you, it turns out that the, the one bad act defines you forever and it's what you are remembered for. It's uh, the evil that men do lives after them and the good is sometimes unremarked. It's so interesting too, because it, it says less about us and more about the society we live in. And of course, there's degrees. You know, when you hurt another human being and take someone's life, it might be different than even, you know, gambling. That um, Sure. But that, that we don't, that compassion can be so shortchanged for judgment and that Thea's task in some ways was to really hold tight to the people who had more compassion for her, like her best friend, Julie. Everyone should have a best friend like Julie. She was the most delightful character to write about because she just, I made her up in a way that she just doesn't have any limits. And she has a lot of money too. So she can give really nice presents. And she's a generous person and a person whose generosity of spirit is equal to her generosity with things. And it was the one uh, crumb of kindness that I extended to Thea as a character because I wanted her to be tortured. I wanted her to be isolated. And the only thing, she had the solace to some degree of her sisters and her parents, more so with time, because at first they were they were uh, with, withdrawn and blown back by her circumstances and Stefan's circumstances. And to some degree, the comfort of her marriage, which didn't break up. And in real life, that probably wouldn't have happened. In real life, that marriage would have ended like a shot because an, a, a loss that enormous usually ends to leads to a, a rupture in all kinds of relationships that are central to the people's lives. But she, I wanted her to be isolated. I wanted her to be lonely and also resentful of that. But for her to be able to, to look for a way in which she would continue her own life. She's a young woman. She's only in her early 40s when he comes out of prison because she was married and had a baby very young. And she thinks, what will the rest of my life be like as a result of this? Will I be forever defined by this? And of course, there are many twists and turns in the book. From the first page, even though it begins at a prison and it ends at a prison, sort of, there are many, many twists and turns in the story that, uh, that determine how the people will be ultimately defined and whether they will be in any way redeemed. And some of those are pretty, I hope they're pretty surprising. But she starts out believing that basically three quarters of her chances are already used. And that the Thea after and the Thea before are not the same person. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned her family that, that came around a little bit more. 
that was a really interesting element because she had a big family and they lived nearby and they would get together for holidays and Stefan was close to some of his cousins and aunts and uncles. And one of the things that was interesting about Stefan is that he had no record. He was he was generally a sweet, quiet boy. He wasn't the best student. He had some deep attachments to Belinda that might not have been that healthy, but he had no history of violence. And so it was interesting to see his family when he got out. As you said, they came around, but at first, especially I think his grandmother just was not interested in in really accepting him back or had so much judgment for him that in some levels it wasn't maybe as safe for him to be around his whole family with certain people. I mean, it was not physically safe, but emotionally safe. And I wanted to ask you about that element of of human psychology when you've known someone their whole lives and you've, you've never seen evidence of that. And then the criminal justice system says that you are guilty for X, how that changes people's relationship toward you. And then that's part one, I guess part two is your decision to, to move them along. It abruptly changes people's perception of an individual when, you know, you've listened to true crime podcasts and you've seen shows and and read stories in which people say never would have suspected it of him he was always quiet quiet guy kept to himself and Stefan is sort of this you know you described him perfectly not the highest achieving just a nice kid just an ordinary average kid, maybe sort of a disappointment to his high achieving parents, but he even explains to them, I'm not driven like you. I just want to be happy. And I love Belinda. And his father upbraids him and says, you're obsessed with this girl. You're making her your whole life, which is certainly true. And I think which certainly leads to and breeds his predisposition to snap when she finds other dimensions in her life and other dimensions that she wants to explore and different kinds of relationships that will take her away from him, that he might well have had the capability to a snap in a moment of violence. When he comes back to his family, he is unchanged. He doesn't have any memory. Uh, He has memory of prison, which was traumatic for him. Um, but not the worst time that anybody ever did. I mean, he was careful and he kept to himself and he was helpful to people. But he comes back into a situation in which his last memories are of being seized and, and uh, you know, going to the college and, and then being arrested and suddenly being in jail. And But he is basically unchanged. He's that same nice enthusiastic kid and they don't quite know how to take that they don't know if he's faking it and trying to inveigle them into being on his side they don't know if he's on the level as time passes I think his aunts and his grandparents start to see that yes this is the real kid this is the genuine um, individual, he's still the same kid that he was before the tragedy. And they are first surprised by that, and then increasingly accepting of it. And I think the acceptance of his close family is the thing. Stefan is suicidal at the beginning when he comes home. And I think it's the acceptance of his nuclear family and his extended family that caused him to give life afterward a chance. And he's tentative about that. I think one of the the extra challenges, which is true in many cases, but not all cases, because there's all kinds of um, domestic murders, is that he has to face the mother of Belinda on a regular basis because she has organize these protesters that are outside their house every day because she lives in the same small town because they were good friends growing up and she has understandably just 
the seething anger, um, a sense of uh, like underneath it all, like some kind of revenge almost like, like with the protesters and just a hatred. And that's, that's fair. Everyone's allowed their emotions, but it adds another dimension of tension in the book. So I wanted to ask you about that. He's not able to, Stefan's not able to quietly fold himself back into any kind of life. He can't go anywhere. He can't. And that's true for not very, not very many people realize you can't go anywhere when you're on parole for a long time, more than 50 miles without getting permission from your parole officer. You can't go into another state or uh, even for a family occasion. And the, uh, the, Actually, Jill's organization, which is an organization committed to combating dating violence and the reasons for dating violence, is actually very worthy. I wanted to create it as something that I would find, if as a mother, that I would find an important part of addressing a cultural problem that is too often not seen as part of the domestic violence spectrum. So what she's doing is a worthy act. She's doing it out of rage and despair, but what she's doing is drawing attention to something that ought to be highlighted. Even Thea has to admit that what the work that she's doing is worthy work. It's all based on her loss and her anguish. And to see himself to come home every day and there's new graffiti on the painted on the garage and it says, you know, Stefan, don't come back and murderer. And his despair is as understandable as her rage. Let's say that. One of the things that happens for him is he is, I mean, he's so deep in, I mean, he loved Belinda and he misses her and he talks about missing her. Is he, he creates a project he creates what's called the healing project and he, you know, with his thoughts and so much rejection for him, like trying to find jobs and that sort of thing. He's trying to find a way to not make up for a crime. You can't do that, but to find and express remorse. And he starts something called the healing project. Can you talk about that? That was another thing that I just had fun making that up because I thought there are movements in uh, that bring together crime victims and perpetrators, usually in a setting of asking for and receiving forgiveness for that crime. That does seem to me sometimes people aren't ready to really do that. And it seems sometimes to be a forced scenario in which people believe that they ought to be able to emotionally come to terms with something that's too difficult. But he creates a project in which people literally make amends. For example, there's someone he knew in prison who was a drunk driver responsible for a a vehicular homicide. What Stefan arranges and the family accepts it is for that man when he comes out of prison to set aside a portion of his earnings for for as long as it takes to educate the children of the woman he killed in the accident. So it's a practical way to make amends. And uh, the he is astonished by the outpouring of of people who want to be a part of it and people who want to be considered for both sides of it to write a letter of appeal or to write a letter to volunteer to make amends in their own lives. And those are deep human emotions. There's really no way that you can ever address a loss, like the loss of the woman who was the mother of the two young children who he hit with his car. You can never really address that loss, but it's an acknowledgement that at least people want to try want to try to do something to go forward and make amends. So from the day that you met this woman at the hotel to today and grappling with all of these ideas and themes in your book, did anything inside of you change how you thought about any of these issues? No, except that I felt uh, deeper 
about them. I felt that it was more urgent to write this story, particularly the more people say, I don't know what he's going to write that book. Because I thought there is gold there. Everybody, not on this level, of course, but everybody has something in his life or her life. People have things they would wish to change. And they would they have profound regrets. In some ways, I think the book is an examination of the role of regret. Thea thinks at one point, and I hope it's still in the book. I don't even remember. I remember writing it, but I don't remember whether it's still in there or has been changed. That she believes that guilt is a useful human emotion. That it it is a goad or a, an inspiration toward change and toward making things better. If people didn't feel guilt, if people didn't feel that responsibility for their actions uh, or the actions of those close to them, maybe they wouldn't try so hard to change things going forward. And if I want to stand on a soapbox a little bit or a tiny bit, that part was really important to me. Because I think we're a culture that so desperately don't feel guilty, don't feel bad, you know, just put it behind you. Well, I don't, I don't think you should do that. I think you should put it behind you by coming to terms with it big time, whatever it is. So one other element of the book that you mentioned was that there are a lot of twists and turns, and I don't want to give anything away. How do you, as a writer for craft, and so many of my listeners are writers who might have mysteries or lingering questions, do you have any advice or anything you learned or methods you employed for sort of sprinkling these bigger mysteries throughout the book? You have to hide everything in plain sight. People should be able to get to the end of the book and look back and say, ah, that's what that meant. And it was right there on page 36 or page 61. You really can't hide anything from a reader because it's cheesy to do that. It's unacceptable to get to the end and suddenly we've all read a book like this where they say, hey, the butler was his twin. And that's what, you know, it's not fair to just pull that rabbit out of the hat at the end. But everything that you put down should not necessarily lead to the final conclusion too quickly or too easily. The elements of the story should be crafted well enough, and gosh, I hope they are, crafted well enough that the reader isn't saying, I know what happened you know, on page uh, uh, 75 of a 350-page book, there should be many different answers to uh, possible answers to a mystery and, and not just like phony red herrings, but many different viable, possible answers to a mystery in a story that, uh, that conceivably could change everything. And among them, perhaps the least obvious of them is the truth. Is that something that you find you fold in when you get to revision? Or do you find that you're planting those seeds in the very beginning? I don't ever meaningfully revise my stories. I do what the editor tells me to do and what my agent tells me to do in terms of making a, a revisions, but they're usually pacing revisions and they don't meaningfully affect the plot to, to any great degree. I write from the beginning to the end and I march forward and make sure that, that the one part is finished before and is as perfect as I can make it before I go on to the next part. So I have the whole book in mind. And so when you started writing this and your agent and editor were not on board, how did you get them on board? Or did you just start writing and say, here you go, this is it? I started writing and I, I'm never cavalier. I mean, because um, I, well, you know, it's, it's a lonely world out there. I, um, I tried to convince them when they saw the character 
how Stefan emerged and it, the complexities of his relationships, there was a, a clicking, a click over point where they wanted to know more. And when then I had him. Your agent and your editor are the stand-in for your reading public. And there's a certain point at which they're just not gonna, they're not gonna let go. And when you get to that point, it, uh, my friend, uh, Scott Tarot, who wrote Presumed Innocent and many other terrific books said that it starts, you think it's gonna be a meditation on uh, a family drama. And then it quickly, there, the mystery is installed within that family drama that drives the drama forward. And the, I guess you can't, you can't just write a book about feelings, even if they're big ones. Uh, though I know that um, some people who write literary fiction would disagree with me, or truly uh, pure literary fiction would disagree with me. But to me, it's not interesting. Stuff doesn't happen. Stuff's got to happen. And it's got to be surprising. And it's got to be unexpected. And the reader has to gasp. In fact, that's what my newsletter, uh, I named my newsletter from my website, the, um, the Gasp. Because to me, that's the important part of every story, that, that inrush of breath that you feel when you didn't realize what was coming. Is there anything else you want to talk about the book before I get to the final questions that we didn't talk about? To me, the story was a challenge to write for the reasons that were stated by the people who care about my work and about my career. Can you make these characters someone readers will take to their heart and, and root for? And that was my goal. I don't know. You know, people will tell me whether the, that I achieved that or not. But that, you know, it has to go out in the world now and make its living. Just like a grown-up kid, this book. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? This is from my very favorite book. It has been my very favorite book since the first time I read it when I was 12. And it's from an author called Betty Smith. And the book's called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And this is from the point of view character, Francie Nolan, who meant so much to me that I named my firstborn daughter, Francie Nolan. Um, and she is talking about uh, her hopes for the future. God, she prayed, let me be something every minute of every hour of my life. Let me be happy, let me be sad, let me be cold or warm, let me be hungry have too much to eat, let me be ragged or well-dressed, let me be sincere, be deceitful, let me be truthful, let me be a liar, let me be honorable and let me sin, only let me be something every blessed minute and when I sleep, let me dream all the time so that one, not one, little piece of living is ever lost. From that time on, the world was hers for the reading. She would never be lonely again, never miss the lack of intimate friends. Book became, books became her friends. And there was one for every mood. There was poetry for quiet companionship. There was adventure when she was tired of quiet hours. There would be love stories when she came into adolescence. On that day, she first knew she could read. She made a vow to read a book every day as long as she lived. So she became the books in the library. She was the flower in the brown bowl. Part of her life was made from the tree growing rankly up through the concrete in the yard. She was the bitter quarrels with her brother. She was Katie's secret, despairing, weeping, the shame of her alcoholic father. She was all these things and of something more. God or whatever is his equivalent puts into each soul that is given life. The one different thing that makes no two fingerprints on the face of the earth alike. Do you want to say anything else about that? I didn't grow up in, in brutal poverty the way Francie Nolan did. I didn't grow up in a tenement, but I grew up in a poor family. And to me, the escape was books and writing and reading. And that's part of why I, I think there are so, Oprah Winfrey is one of them. There's so many lonely kids growing up in that way for whom books are the passage out. They're the beginning of the dream. 
Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This, I suffered over this. This is near, it doesn't give anything away, but this is near the end of the book when Thea is reflecting on what happened to Jill, who had been one, uh, Belinda's mother, who had once been her friend. Now I know that when you lose a child, it's not the same as losing a contemporary, even a beloved husband or wife. When you lose a child, you grieve as a child grieves, which is to say you grieve backward. You don't get better as time passes. You get worse. Time does not take you closer to acceptance, only farther from the one you love. Day by day, Belinda slipped away from Jill. Season by season, the clothes in Belinda's closet were no longer the current style. The music on her player was not the music kids listened to anymore. Year by year, other people's sons and daughters, once the same age as Belinda grew up, and they did the things that Belinda might have done. They graduated college and started medical school. They went to graduate school or joined the Peace Corps. They found their first jobs. They learned to sign contracts and leases. Some of them got engaged. The more of these milestones that passed, the more meaningless the world became. Jill did not get stronger. She only got older, older without Belinda. The very good memories, silly small things, the way Belinda cried, when a dog died in a movie, the way she wrapped her long hair in an old t-shirt to dry, these began to lose their sharp edges. And they once scalded Jill in the eyes like zinc, but she realized the scalding was better because at least it was feeling. And feeling had washed off her like sidewalk chalk in the rain. The grief was better because it was the dark twin of the stupefying love you felt for your child when your child was with you so much bigger than anything you expected to feel, so much bigger than any other parent's love, so magnificent you had to keep it a secret, lest the board gods notice and knock it out of your hands. Jill's love for her only was a second son, and as the sun disappeared, minute by hour by day, by week, by month, by year, so did her reason. Do you want to say anything else about that? It's self-explanatory. Where do you write? In my bed on a lap desk. I got a new lap desk for Christmas from my oldest son, and it's a dilly. So I, uh, I'm very happy sitting against my headboard in the only quiet place in my house where I live with seven other people and, uh, and writing away. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't like the ocean uh, or the beach, but I drive to the beach and sit in my car. I live uh, on at the seaside. I live on Cape Cod and I don't get the wrong impression because I don't live in one of the houses you probably picture as being part of Cape Cod. But I drive um, to the seashore and watch the tossing of the water and it takes me out of my uh, out of my writing practice and so that I can breathe a different air. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? One of my best friends is a novel writer. Her name is Ann Garvin. And uh, she and I submit both our uh, completed first drafts and also the ideas for the stories that we want to write to each other. And then we honestly give each other uh, guidance on that. Do you think he would really do that? Do you believe that that would really be something she would share with her? How did she find out about that? And doesn't that seem too easy? So, uh, so yeah, to another writer whose uh, judgment I trust. How have you dealt with rejection? I am a huge sissy about that. I cry and take to my bed. I'm depressed for days. I hate everything. I want to cast a killing frost on the world when I'm rejected or get a bad review on one of my books. So I am not mature about it, and nor do I feel my great friend, Karen Dion, who wrote The Marsh King's Daughter, she said, every time there was a bad review, I just thought, I'm better than that. And I, I don't know. I just don't know how people can uh, have that much self-confidence. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is smite because it can have two meanings. You know, you can be smitten with love and affection, or you can 
want to smite someone like the gods uh, smite you in revenge. And so I, um, it is a great favorite of mine. It was also a great favorite of my countrywoman here in Massachusetts of Emily Dickinson. Thank you so much for your time and for having this discussion with me. I'm really grateful. It's really been fun. Thank you. If you like today's show with Jacqueline Machard, author of The Good Son, check out my interview with Peter Heller on his novel, Celine. We talked about solving mysteries, writing high-stakes fiction, and how writers can be transported in the process of creation. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights and craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sarah Manguso, Douglas Stewart, Keith O'Brien, Jacinda Townsend, Jeffrey Yang, and Ada Limon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.